You have a couple of Davids here. Uh, Michael, Philip, Abigail. In particular, the names of the twelve apostles have always been popular. My brother's name is Matthew. I had a grandfather named James. Peter, Andrew, John, those are all common names. You'll even run across a Bartholomew every now and then. Have you ever met anyone named Judas? I haven't. It's about as popular a name for boys as Jezebel is for girls. And that's a shame in some ways because Judas in and of itself is a fine name. It simply means Jehovah leads. That's a good sentiment. And it's just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Judah, which has remained popular among Jews even down to this day. Two of Jesus' disciples were named Judas. One of them actually has three names. The early Christian writer Jerome refers to him as Trinomius, the man with three names for that reason. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 3, he's called Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Luke, in his list of the twelve, calls him Judas, the son of James. So Judas was probably the name given to him at birth. Labaius and Thaddeus are more like what we'd call nicknames. They have similar meanings. Uh, Thaddeus means breast child, so it's evoking a nursing baby. Labaius is similar, it means heart child. Both of those have almost a derisive sound. If we were to put them in English today, we'd probably say something like, Mama's boy. <laughs> and maybe that's because he was the youngest in the family. Maybe he was especially loved by his mother. We don't know. But I do think that they indicate a tender, childlike heart. The New Testament records only one incident concerning this man. This is in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 21. This is the last night of Jesus' life when he's there eating with uh, his apostles in the upper room. Whoever has my commandments, that Jesus speaking, and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. I think we see maybe something of that sort of tender, childlike heart here. This question is simple and straightforward. It's not brash or overconfident like we see from some of the other apostles at times. And Jesus answers him in this straightforward manner too. So what we know about this Judas, son of James, he was a pious man. He was a man who loved the Lord. He was a man who found salvation in Jesus. And if that were all we knew about Judas, then I expect that Judas would remain a popular name even today. But John gives us the key to why, as we know, Judas is not a popular name, even in this text. He points out how this name is lived in infamy. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him. 
Judas Iscariot is probably the most notorious figure in human history. Every time his name is mentioned in Scripture, there's a notation along with it that he was a traitor. He was the one who betrayed Jesus Christ. He committed the most heinous crime in history, selling out the spotless Son of God for just a handful of silver. One of the things we've endeavored to emphasize throughout this series of lessons is the apostles as ordinary men. They weren't superheroes. They were just like you and me. They all had their own strengths, their own weaknesses. They all had their own talents and abilities. Some of them were, were brash and bold. Some of them were more quiet and reserved. Some of them were type A personalities who really took the bull by the horns. Others were content to remain in the background. But we see them as a group a lot like us. I, I hope we brought that out. What I want us to keep in mind is that same thing applies to Judas. We shouldn't put the other 11 up on pedestals. We shouldn't worship them, treat them like superheroes. But we shouldn't just caricature Judas as a supervillain either. He was a real man too. So I want us to try to consider him tonight as much as we possibly can without thinking about that one great big black mark on his record as we begin. And when I, I want to start just by making three simple assertions about Judas. The first one is that Judas wasn't a monster. Judas was a man. Judas was an ordinary man, just like the rest of the twelve. He was just as human as we are. Now that seems obvious, maybe even trite, but I think it's imperative that we keep that in mind, because those of us who are basically good, decent people, even in our own lives, we often have this tendency to look down on people who go to great evil and think that, well, they're just not like us. We're, we're made of different stuff. We're somehow better than them, and they're, they're made of all the bad materials out in the world. Judas was a man just like we are. We have problems seeing our kinship with the one who would betray the Son of God, but he was just like us. We need to remember that. Second assertion, not only was G Judas human, he also wasn't always a traitor. I think of Luke's account of Jesus calling the twelve apostles, and Jesus had spent all night in prayer, you remember. And it says that when day was come, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. List the names. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Judas was a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Luke says he became a traitor. I mean, certainly we don't think that Judas was born a traitor. It's not as if his mother was holding him in her arms and she could look into his eyes and see the, the treachery there. I don't think that Judas was a traitor from the very beginning or anything like that. Now, some people will say that he was always a devil. No point to Scripture to indicate that. 
but I'd point out to you that that's not actually what Scripture says. John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus says there, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? The meaning of that clause is that one of you is devilish. We're here, this is tough to tell in John's gospel at times, but you compare it to the synoptics. Even though this is John chapter 6, we are well into Jesus' ministry at this point. This is only about a year before he's killed. So at this point, we're well into his activity. Judas is facing the wrong way at this point. Yes, absolutely. He's headed in the wrong direction. But that's not to say that Judas was wholly bad. In fact, I don't think, personally, I don't think it's ever fair to say that Judas was wholly bad. And I think we see that from the reaction that we'll look at later tonight when Jesus is condemned to death, the remorse that he feels. A man who was completely and totally evil could not have felt the remorse that Judas felt on account of his action, even if that remorse was, was misguided and channeled in a completely terrible direction. I want you to think about this, too. In John chapter 6, when Jesus says, one of you is a devil, and he's talking about Judas, this is at the exact same time that Peter confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus has to rebuke him. You remember this story? We know it best from Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? And they give some answers, but who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds enthusiastically to that. You're right. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And then he starts to unpack what that means, that he has to go down to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed. And do you remember what Peter says? No way, Lord. That's not going to happen to you. Peter was trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. This is just minutes later. And Jesus rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. That's as sharp a rebuke as you can imagine. Jesus calls Judas a devil, but he calls Peter Satan. Was Peter wholly evil? No. We know that he wasn't. And I'd suggest, too, that Judas was no more beyond redemption than Peter was. And that brings me to the third assertion I want to make. If Judas was not always a traitor, that means that at one point, Judas was a loyal friend of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. We've already seen that. Remember that Jesus chose the 12 apostles out of those disciples, the people who were already following him. Judas had made the choice to follow Jesus. Now, some have suggested that Judas followed Jesus out of mixed motives. He had some selfish ambition there at work. Sure, I'll grant that. Does that make him any different from the rest of the apostles? No. We've seen that already, if you've been here for these lessons. Think about James and John hiding behind their mother's skirts and going to Jesus and saying, when you come into your kingdom, put one of us at your right hand and the other one at your left hand. And the other apostles all hear about that and they become indignant. Why are they indignant? 
It's not righteous indignation. They're upset because James and John have the audacity to ask for the very thing that they want. We all want to sit at his right hand. We want to be Jesus' top men. Judas had mixed motives. He had some selfish ambition. So did the rest at the beginning. I believe also that Judas was a friend of Jesus, not only because he chose Jesus, but also because Jesus chose him. There must have been other worthy men that Jesus could choose. In fact, I know that there were. We get to Acts chapter 1, and they narrow it down to a couple. Uh, Joseph, who's called Justice, and Matthias, who's ultimately chosen to replace Judas. But Jesus chose him because he saw some sort of potential there in Judas, just the way that he did in the rest. Now, of course, Judas betrayed Jesus, and that was predicted by Scripture. This was in fulfillment of prophecy. And here we're getting into a, a murky area where our free will is in tension with God's foreknowledge, and that's not something that we're going to work out in just one lesson tonight, so I won't even get into that. But I will say that Judas always had a choice. Judas didn't have to betray Jesus. He chose to betray Jesus. He could have chosen to go a different way. And Jesus saw that potential within him. I think we can be sure that Judas was a friend, too, because none of the other apostles ever suspected during Jesus' ministry that he was anything else. Jesus sent them out on missions, and Judas did his work just like the rest did. <laughs> you think about that night of the Last Supper when Jesus says to them, one of you will betray me. They don't all give the side eye to Judas. They don't say, oh, yeah, it's Judas, isn't it? I've had my eye on that guy for a while. No. Is it me, Lord? Is it me? They're all uncertain. They don't know. It's only with half a century of hindsight that, for example, John could write in his gospel that he was dipping into the money bag. They didn't know that in the moment. They thought he was a loyal friend, and I think that's because that's what he was in the beginning. But with all that said, at some point, Judas turned away from genuinely following Jesus. Don't know when exactly that began to transpire. Don't know how it happened in the beginning. It probably seemed like a, a minor matter at the time. We can speculate some things that might be possible. Maybe there was some sort of personal animosity, some rivalry there. For one thing, Judas evidently was the only one of the twelve who was not a native Galilean. His surname is Cariot, means man of Kirioth. Kirioth was a small little village down in southern Judea. So in other words, the rest of the apostles are all from Galilee. In fact, we've seen that a lot of them probably were childhood friends. From the very beginning, Judas must have felt like an outsider. And maybe that provided that fertile soil for jealousy to take root. For another thing, before long, <clears throat> it must have become evident that not all of the apostles were in that same level of, of confidence, that inner circle. It was pretty clear that Peter and James and John were in one place and Judas was in another when it came to their relationship with Jesus. Maybe he resented that. Bumbling Simon Peter, those hotheads, James and John, 
Maybe he thought that he was more worthy than they were to be in that inner circle. Then again, in my opinion, one of the things that's key to understanding why Judas did what he did, I think he probably became disappointed because things weren't turning out the way that he thought and the way that he hoped they were going to. When he began to follow Jesus, he was absolutely sure that he was going to establish an earthly kingdom. Now, a lot of the rest of the apostles felt that same way. Judas had those same messianic expectations that many of his Jewish countrymen did. Here was a man who was going to lead them against the Romans. He was going to put his foot on their throat. They weren't going to be conquered anymore. They were going to be the conquerors. And yet, he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. That never happens. Think about here the last week of Jesus' life, what seems to be the last straw when Judas finally goes to the chief priest. Jesus comes in at this pinnacle of his popularity, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. All of the crowds are acclaiming him as king. They're ready to crown him. This is the decisive moment. This is the time to strike. Go ahead and take over the city. This should be your capital. The rebellion should begin from here. And instead, the most decisive action that Jesus takes is to weep over the city. Maybe Judas is thinking, this, he's not a conqueror after all. This, this guy's never going to be what I thought he was. So Judas was perhaps disappointed in his own prospects for advancement, disappointed in his ambitions for an independent Jewish kingdom. And at some point along the way, as he became increasingly disappointed, maybe he decided to get what little bit out of this misadventure he could. And so he started to dip into the money bag. You know, at first he told himself he wasn't stealing. He was going to put that back at some point. It was just a little advance. And then later on, maybe he justified it by saying that he was just taking a salary. This was his fair wage, what he'd earned, what he deserved. And it was a pittance compared to what he'd make if he hadn't left everything behind and gone on this wild goose chase. But while Judas was soothing his own conscience with these soft lies, and while evidently he was fooling all the rest of the apostles who thought he was genuine, there was one that he wasn't deceiving. He felt that Jesus saw him for what he was. He became uncomfortable in his presence, heartbroken even. The one who before had been this source of comfort and of joy is now this source of tension, grief. And of course, Judas didn't put the blame for that rupture in the relationship on himself. He put it on Jesus. He's not what he was supposed to be. This isn't what I signed up for at all. And so he came to hate his one-time friend with a deadly hatred. A hatred so intense that he actually conspired with Jesus' enemies. What will you give me and I will deliver him to you, he asked them. What was the price? Thirty pieces of silver. That's a trifling sum. It's the price of a slave. 
Judas probably thought he'd get a lot more than that. But at this point, he's backed into a corner. It's not like he could turn back now that he's already outed himself as being a traitor. And so he took the 30 pieces of silver because 30 pieces of silver is 30 pieces of silver. It's better than nothing. You see, I don't think greed was Judas's primary motivation in betraying Jesus. If that had been the case, he wouldn't have kissed him. There was no need for him to do that, to point out Jesus. But that's a highly symbolic gesture. There's venom. There's spite in that action. The man that he had once loved so greatly, he's now come to hate with this most intense hatred imaginable. Jealous, disappointed, greedy Judas has really reached his end here. And I expect he thought he would go his own way after he betrayed Jesus, but he just couldn't. For some reason, some fascination draws him to Jesus' trial. And then he hears that the man he'd sold out has been condemned to death. And suddenly the gravity of what he's done hits him. He has this epiphany. And he tries to take the money back to the chief priest. Matthew chapter 27, there's this very vivid scene. He takes the silver back to them. And he says, you hear the agony in what he says, I've sinned by betraying the innocent blood. And they say, what's that to us? See to that yourself. He throws the money down in the temple. He runs out in grief and despair. You, you see the desperation of this man? He's reached the end of his rope. The worst hour of his life is upon him. He's needed help before, but he's never needed it like he needs it now. And he has no idea what to do. He has no idea where to turn. He has no hope. All of us face that desperate hour of need at some point in our lives. And where we turn says a great deal about us. When everything's dark, where do we go? Humanity tries to seek resolution in a number of different areas. Some people, some people turn to substances to try to dull their pain so that they'll forget about what's going on. Sometimes people try to soothe their pain with power, with possessions. Judas had no idea what to do. And so he took his own life. And that, above everything else, is the real tragedy of Judas. Because he still could have found forgiveness in Christ. In spite of everything that he'd done, he still could have come back home he still could have been forgiven. The only hope for us when our life is in shambles, 
is in Jesus Christ. He's the source of all strength, all power. Is He the Lord and Master of your life this evening? Maybe, like Judas, you've made Him Lord and Master of your life at one point, but maybe, maybe you're sitting there even now and you feel uncomfortable, uneasy in His presence. You feel like He can see into your heart and see your motivations and see that you don't measure up. You're not what you ought to be. You can still come home. It's never too late. If you need to make changes in your life this evening, whatever your need may be, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.